Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Mel, and, uh, and also thanks uh, to Jim Falk and Scott Miller, who I had met earlier. Uh, uh, thank you all for the invitation. Uh, this is a great opportunity for me uh, that was presented to me by, uh, by Mel to try to figure out exactly what I would say about this in about 30 minutes. Uh, it's, also, uh, uh, it's also very good to be in Dallas. I have not been in Dallas in many years. Uh, as Mel mentioned, uh, I was stationed in the Air Force at uh, Carswell Air Force Base at Fort Worth. Uh, but when I got to Fort Worth, they said, you don't want to go east to Dallas. They're different over there. Um, in fact, my youngest daughter was, uh, was born in Texas, and uh, it turns out uh, she's the tallest one in the family of my kids, including my son. And, and people have always chalked that up. He says, well, she was born in Texas. That has something to do with it anyway. Um, my first memory of Dallas I've got to recount because I just uh, sort of occurred to me when I was talking with Mel yesterday. I went to the Air Force Academy many, many years ago. Uh, my very first plane ride was uh, to the Air Force Academy. Uh, I had been out of Boston once. I took the train to New York City once, and that was about it. And uh, at the Air Force Academy in my freshman year, uh, the football team was undefeated and ranked sixth in the country. And believe it or not, uh, we went to the Cotton Bowl back when there were only four or five bowls in existence, not uh, 30 or 40. And uh, we took the train down. I'm an 18-year-old coming to Dallas. They, I slept in a cot in the SMU field house. Uh, they set us up with a dance. I had a date with a Kilgore Rangerette. And I'm saying, these folks are really something. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly for someone with one plane ride in his life and 18 years old, uh, this was the big time for me anyway. Uh, I agree with Mel, I agree with Jim about uh, current events and how these things tend to merge. Uh, often uh, so many things happen uh, and you can't keep up with them. Uh, so what, I've, I, what I try to do, and I'll talk about some uh, specific things about the Middle East later on, but what I tried to do uh, when I got the task from Mel is try to understand uh, how to put this in some context that I can speak it in very general terms. So what I'm going to talk about is I thought through what the present conflicts the United States is engaged in and the, what some of the movements are of military forces around the world and how that impacts U.S. strategy and, and U.S. forces. That is what some things that the, uh, that the United States ought to be doing. <clears throat> Having said that, um, I'm obviously talking about the future. Uh, my degrees in history so when I start talking about the future, you've got to be very wary because there's great evidence that we're not very good at understanding what comes next. Five years ago in 2006, we thought that we were doomed in our expedition in Iraq, but Afghanistan was going pretty well. That's just five years ago. Back in 1996, post-Cold War period, we're trying to expand NATO, we were a little worried about North Korea and the Taiwan Straits. Fortunately, the Middle East was pretty well settled. 
except maybe we may have uh, worried about some sort of conventional attack by Iraq again. We, had an all we were not at all prepared or thinking through what was going to happen five years later in 2001. In 1986, that is a very key moment in the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and I don't know anyone that I was speaking with at the time that thought in five years after that the Soviet Union is gone. Nor in 1976, right in the middle of the post-Vietnam malaise, that five years after that we would be on a massive buildup. Or in 1966, when we're really getting engaged big time in Vietnam, that five years later we'd be getting out as fast as we can and not on good terms. And on and on, 1956, uh, strategic bombing, massive retaliation, five years later we're building special forces. 1946, as someone mentioned, right after the, we had beaten huge powers in Japan and Germany, five years later we're in a stalemate, with, in stalemate in Korea. So even five years, which in strategy terms or force building terms is a very short time, you ought to be very humble about what think we're thinking uh, uh, what will come next and what we have to be prepared for. Uh, we really don't know, and I don't think we're going to know. Uh, so what I'd like to do, realizing that I could be wrong, uh, we all could be wrong about what we're looking for, at least talk, talk through how I think the U.S. military and the U.S. government sees the U.S. position right now and what they're going to do about it. And I've narrowed it down to really three things. In other words, the onset or the preoccupation with insurgency that we're seeing uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan now, more in Afghanistan, of course, and what the implications of that are, uh, as, uh, as was also mentioned, is how about the U.S. as a superpower contending with other powers that are rising, particularly in Asia, that's the second one, and finally the whole issue of uh, the proliferation of nuclear weapons and what that means and how the U.S. is going to try to deal with that. Um, let me just go through those things. Uh, uh, by the way, when I came up with that list, uh, there's a much longer list that I had to take off the table. I'm looking forward to dealing with any of those things in questions and answer period later on. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> insurgency and uh, counterinsurgency, uh, low-level war. Uh, you would think uh, that is the United States, the United States background to warfare uh, Coming out of our experience in the Second World War is that uh, we like fast-moving, high-technology, high-trained people. Those are the kinds of wars we, that we were good at and we like to fight and would like to turn wars into it. Uh, despite the fact that our American Revolution, we were insurgents, uh, and despite the, uh, throughout our history, lot, much uh, action in terms of insurgency warfare, uh, whether we're talking about in the Philippines or in Vietnam, the military is still primed for what they call conventional conflict. Air Force, Army, Navy, Marines, they understood that and that's what they were good at. <clears throat> the, uh, what insurgency does is it, try to take, it tries to take that away from you. In other words, the enemy tries to, uh, get, tries to frustrate your use of precision in speed. Uh, they fight among the people. Uh, they fight in small formations. They give us a, something that we're not willing to, that for a, a number of years, what had not been willing to adjust to. I think it took two or three years in Iraq before we finally moved from trying to fight what we were comfortable with into really dealing with the situation we have now. Uh, and I think the military, particularly I'm talking about the Army and the Marines that have uh, really uh, sustained, uh, that have been at the forefront of this, 
you've got a basically a different organization that is only now becoming, uh, that I think we're going to adjust to it. Um, the war in Afghanistan is a war for the U.S. of small formations. It's a captain's war. It's not a colonel's or a general's war. There's still divisions, but they're army divisions and marine divisions, but they're more administrative in assigning battalions or brigades to the fight. So these are much, much lower level. Uh, it calls for a certain uh, quality of soldier and officer. It has a requires for a great, great awareness of what it takes to win, what victory means. It takes a great deal of patience. And because often you're not sure of when you're winning, you're not sure what victory looks like. It's not, it's not moving anything on a map. In other words, the, uh, if you're a land forces officer or strategist, you say, well, if we can just take the capital, the war is over. Well, it doesn't look that way to me, and it's not going to look that way. Um, it was for the ground forces, in a lot of ways, they considered this as something that they had to do, but they wanted to get back to what they were going to do, what they preferred to do. A couple of years ago, Secretary Gates said, is that all these so-called non-traditional capabilities have moved into the mainstream of military thinking, planning, and strategy where they must stay. In other words, that's where we're going to stay for a long time. That's going to be, be preeminent. Um, by the way, Secretary Gates, just about a week or two ago, he also mentioned that is, uh, as a, any, that, and I think quite memorably, he says, any future Secretary of Defense who advocates the U.S. being involved in a land war in Asia, Middle East or Africa ought to have his head examined. That's quite a statement. But what it has to do with the basic reorientation of U.S. land forces in something that they have not been comfortable with and certainly hasn't been the history, that has not been the, the way of war of those forces, but I think it's going to have to be. Um, there's some downsides to that. It's a very focus on the short term We've got, in other words, is that this is eating up many resources that are being ex expended in Iraq and Afghanistan. It keeps the U.S. focused on the Middle East and not so much on other parts of the world, which is maybe not so good. That is, the next point I want to talk about is the U.S. future as a military power, uh, and that is being challenged, I think, at least indirectly, by some other rising states in the world. In terms of conventional power or a power of states, let me just talk about a couple of them uh, without going into great detail. Uh, first of all, looking at Europe. Uh, Europe, and particularly Great Britain, uh, throughout my lifetime and ever since, uh, and during and ever since World War II, the British were always seen as having a special relationship with the United States where they would often, even when uh, countries on the continent of Europe would not take part, the, Brit the British were with us. About six months ago, the British came out with a new strategy, a white paper that sort of signaled where they were going now, and they have had to make some drastic cuts in their military forces. Drastic cuts. To the point of now they, they say we're looking, if they're looking to create a force where they can deploy one brigade. A brigade is a third of a division. Not substantially, not a substantially large force. Also, within the past several months, they've signed a defense treaty with the French that essentially is going to align them with the French. They're going to use a common aircraft carrier. They're going to have common planning and nuclear forces and expeditionary forces. In terms of great power alignments, 
uh, one, one way to look at it is that uh, Great Britain is joining the continent as opposed to being much more aligned with the U.S. Where in 2003, the British uh, were with the United States on the attack in Iraq, the French went up. If this is a joint venture, um, maybe the British can't do that alone any longer. So we've got to keep that in mind about who our potential allies will be. Asia is the place where the most, the largest growth of military forces are. Let me just talk about that in a little bit. India, for instance, in the last decade, increased its defense spending by 50%. Since the Mumbai attacks in 2009, it's up 20% in addition to that. So India is building a large navy with aircraft carriers and is becoming a major power in the world. I'm not implying at all that the U.S. is on a confrontation with India, but the India is emerging, at least in the subcontinent, as something other than one of the powers. It's becoming a major power. Soon to be the largest country in the world, of course, in population, passing China in the next generation. Um, and if not, not necessarily a concern to us, it certainly is a concern to China. Let me look at China just a bit and how to view it. Uh, the United States looks at China in several ways, and you can pick your author or pick your strategist on whether this is a growing Chinese threat or this is a growing strategic uh, economic competition. That is, I think it is wrong to see China as being a sort of surrogate Soviet Union that is going to emerge in some sort of Cold War. I don't think that's going to be the case, uh, but it, it certainly argues for the United States having some sort of uh, understanding about how they're going to deal with China. Looking at China's perspective, now they have some huge problems, China does, that they have to handle internally. But in 1990, China was an exporter of oil. An exporter, 1990. Now they're a huge importer of oil, and in fact in the next decade, they're going to depend more on oil imports than the United States is. That's a severe change in terms of the awareness of that country and the need to protect their oil supplies. In other words, you know how much we worry about our oil supply. The Chinese are going to be in exactly the same boat. So if you're a Chinese military planner, you would certainly think about how do I, how do I guarantee or how do I secure oil that comes almost entirely from the Middle East. Not, not necessarily for the U.S. We get a lot from Canada, Mexico, etc. Chinese oil comes from the Middle East. And they have to be thinking about the Straits of Malacca and coming from the Middle East to China. And oh, by the way, right through the waters patrolled by a large Indian Navy. And if the, in, if the Chinese have someone they think about in the neighborhood, it's India. So one, one could say, why are they building a large ocean-going fleet when they could just rely on the U.S. to keep the sea lines of communications open? Well. Think about it, if you were Chinese, do you want to rely on the U.S.? Do you want to rely on the U.S. to, uh, to keep from the Indians interdicting the oil supply? I think not. Fortunately, the United States and China are one on this one. We both want to keep oil supplies going. There's no competition on that one. So that's not a point of contention. What is a contention, of course, is uh, where Chinese uh, intentions go in terms of the control of their territory and the influence beyond their territory. 
The Chinese are really of two minds of this. In other words, they want influence in the region in Central Asia, in Southeast Asia, and certainly Northeast Asia. Uh, I don't think this is a game of territorial aggrandizement. In fact, the Chinese are trying to work out now whether they want to be able to control those resources that they need, principally energy resources, or just have access to them. If they have access to them, that's not a competition. We want access to them. If they want to control them, and countries that are very nervous about their status often want to control them, then you get into some more aggression. Now, in the past 50 years or so, a key issue between the U.S. and China has been the status of Taiwan. And five or six or ten years ago, uh, that was still, I think, the preeminent issue between China and the U.S. that was preventing more competition. I'm not sure that's the case any longer. Um, I think it's more on resources, and I would say the South China Sea might be moving into first place ahead of Taiwan. Taiwan, uh, from the people I talk to, both Taiwanese, Chinese, and Chinese, I have a, a Chinese student in my class, uh, they seem to be come to some sort of accommodation. Five years ago, based on the Taiwanese government, not quite so, but I think more recently, uh, that has been to some, that has achieved some sort of accommodation. Um, by the way, I, in the U.S. security strategy, there's a, uh, an interesting quote that I'd like to read to you. It was uh, put out by uh, the former Paramount leader, uh, Deng Xiaoping, in 1990, 1997, and it's called the 12-character strategy. It's very interesting. This is supposed to inform how China behaves in military and foreign policy. 12 characters. Uh, their strategy. Observe calmly. Secure our position. Cope with affairs calmly. Hide our capacities and bide our time. Be good at maintaining a low profile and never claim leadership. I think that still describes it. Any sort of crisis, uh, they don't get involved. They don't want to take leadership of action in North Africa. They don't want to take leadership in the Middle East. Uh, they're biding their time. As long as we can get what we want, don't make a fuss, don't alarm the people in Southeast Asia. Just get what you need very quietly. Just get what you need very quietly. Um, by the way, they added another term. Uh, Chinese uh, uh, translation says, make some contributions. Well, that's nice. That's nice. <laughs> uh, let me talk a little bit about, um, uh, based on what uh, Secretary Gates and others have said, is that uh, uh, clearly, if you're talking about conventional war or something above insurgency, the most plausible high-end high scenarios in East Asia are primarily air and naval engagements. Air and naval engagements. No land wars in Asia. Think about that with the present time with our dedication to land forces and improving them and keeping them working. If you're talking about the use of resources, but when you look to the future, it's air and naval. So there's an automatic try to balancing force you have. And, and even while the uh, actions in Afghanistan are going on, the Army and the Marine Corps know that they're heading for a decline in terms of numbers of forces and perhaps uh, resources, as the Defense Department now tries to balance these things. Looking to the future, air and naval. Looking to the present, air and naval are clearly supportive. It's mainly the land forces. I think that's going to be very important to how that works out.
Um, and also, Air and Naval Forces technology tends to be very expensive, very expensive. <coughs> I don't have to tell you that if you ever looked at the price tag for an F-22 or a B-2 or a, a Joint Strike Fighter uh, F-15. Um, in fact, the one thing that uh, I think you might look for the Chinese is that the Chinese have, uh, they're expanding their forces, they're reorienting their forces in order to have a more ocean-going Navy and be able to project power, certainly to Taiwan, but certainly also to their region. Again, it's not necessarily, not necessarily aimed at the United States, but we can't help but take that personally. And where they can, can't move on all these fronts simultaneously, they may use their scientific expertise to challenge the United States in at least one area of U.S. preeminence, space. You might want to think about that. Um, move then and talk about uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation. Um, that used to be, of course, in the Cold War, a preoccupation of the U.S. Soviets, but it's something else entirely. Now we're moving to a period in which most of the major nuclear powers are in Asia. Sure, the British and the French still have a small deterrent force, but most of the new powers are in Asia. China, India, Pakistan, and as I go down that list, Pakistan, and then North Korea probably, we get more and more um, uneasy about what some of the, the future is. Uh, Israel, perhaps Iran. And one of the things we've got to do, we as a country have got to do, is what do we think about that and how are we trying to handle it? I've been reading about that whenever I see a report come out on nuclear weapons uh, by the U.S. government, and I have never been quite satisfied that we really have a handle on what we're going to do. Mainly because it's, it's relatively, I think, intractable. What do you do about nuclear weapons, particularly those in the programs in North Korea and Iran? One thing to think about in those, those countries want to have a nuclear weapon or do they want to have a nuclear weapon program? for foreign policy purposes. In other words, if you have nuclear weapons, are they going to be framed in some sort of military capability? Or are they just to try to keep from a country being invaded and, have, and get more respect in the neighborhood or something of that regard? Uh, that's a very difficult uh, thing to deal with. And I don't think we've come up with a, a real answer yet. Worse still, of course, is that nuclear weapons being um, achieved by some sort of non-state entity or failing state. And there you can get into some true nightmare scenarios. <coughs> what if Pakistan, for instance, breaks apart? What do you do? What if there has been some sort of release of nuclear weapons based on an India or Pakistani war? What role does the United States have to help recovery of that? Or with casualty assistance, consequence management of all time? The United States is probably the only one that has any capacity for that. That may be a future role that we have to have. But in any case, uh, up to, we just recently signed with Russia an arms control agreement, sort of the follow-on or start agreements. I think that's probably the last one that we're going to sign with the Russians, as a U.S.-Russian agreement. If there's any nuclear uh, arms control agreements in the future, it's going to have to include Japan because we're moving down into numbers where now they are a major player, at least Japan, possibly some others. 
In other words, for nuclear weapons, if you thought the insurgency aspects and the great power politics are a difficult one, the thorniest one I can think of is what is the role of nuclear weapons? How do we, what is U.S. nuclear policy going to be? Do we promise no first use? What if someone uses a nuclear weapon against the United States? Does the United States have to respond by the use of a nuclear weapon? Is there any sense in that? What would we target? Believe me, I've sat in a number of forums of 10, 15, 20 folks of nuclear planners talking about these things, and the answers are really quite varied and not at all coherent, in by coherent in terms of everyone agreeing that this is the policy. Uh, but this is a major one that I, I think is really begs for some answers. Um, trying to bring some of these things together, we're looking at a defense budget that is on the way down. Last, uh, already on the books, uh, the Secretary of Defense says, okay, what we're going to do is we're taking $100 billion out of the next five-year program and reprogramming it to other things, such as rebuilding uh, Army and Marine Corps forces and other type systems. Reprogram within the department. Plus, we're taking another $78 billion out of the same plan and turning it back. I think that's his first move, but I don't think that's going to do it. $78 billion is not going to be enough, I think. I think we're looking for a period of austerity when the Defense Department is going to have to look at you know, something much more than that. At the same time, we're trying to rebuild our Army and Marine Corps forces as they've been uh, used up to a great degree in the past 10 years, and still looking at the future, investing in some systems that we're going to, of both air and naval systems, we're going to need in the future. Our, our experience in Afghanistan and Iraq has, I think, has lulled the Air Force and the Navy to sleep about some of the threats that they may be facing. In both of those theaters, we've had a freedom to fly anything we wanted as long as we wanted. Uh, the United States does not have a birthright to do that. And there'll be many conditions in the world where you have to fight for the air and you have to keep fighting for the air, for control of the air, in order to use our air forces and use our Navy or Navy air anyway. Uh, many, uh, as in, in general, uh, many uh, issues that still have to be resolved. Um, I, I'll just want to mention one very briefly. That's the uh, use of unmanned aircraft, a very big issue that is not at all understood well. When I think about unmanned aircraft, I'll have to go back to the 1950s and how we thought about ballistic missiles, where Army, Navy, and Air Force were developing them to find out what the best capability is. It took about 10 years before it was finally solved about who was in charge, uh, what were the capabilities sought. I think that's where we are in terms of unmanned systems, but that's going to be a big issue also. <clears throat> finally, um, having said all the worries we have, uh, let me say that I really have great confidence in the ability of the United States, and particularly the United States military, to solve these things. Even after 10 years of war, and I'm speaking anecdotally about a number of students I get in class that are serving military officers who are getting their degrees, or else who have served sometimes for three and, or four years in Af Iraq or Afghanistan, and have got out of the military and are getting their degrees. 
the kinds of people that served as captains and mages in these conflicts are tremendous warriors and tacticians. They are really good. No one is close to being their capabilities. In other words, you're just not leading, you are leading in a small unit operation and the, the awareness of these men and women about what the environment is and how to deal with civilians and how to deal with this netherworld of insurgency and counterinsurgency is quite remarkable. Now, a number of those have left the service because of reasons of personal preference or family reasons or things <laughs> such as that. Uh, but their experience is impressive. And in fact, I think the future of military leadership is in very good hands, although there's fewer of them in this cohort that has been through this, this really searing uh, time of the last 10 years. However, those folks that got out, I would look for them as very key civilian leaders in the future. There's some impressive people, and I think looking to the future, you're going to find some folks who come into politics or into government with some uh, experience, some very good experience in Afghanistan or Iraq or being in the military that are going to really have something to say. So I have great confidence in that regard. Um, with that, I'd like to turn it over and answer questions. Thank you very much, Mel. Boy, now, isn't there a lot that we don't know? Okay. Uh, we're going to start, we have a good tradition here to save time and to uh, uh, afford the largest number of questions. We take three questions at a time. So uh, when, if, when you ask your question, when you're recognized and ask your question, please try to not to include any editorializing because we want to save time. And also we, with the high school uh, students here, we start the program with, they have turned in some index cards. We'll have one question from the high school students, which I will read, and then we'll recognize two from the audience. And, uh, okay. and uh, let me just say one okay. thing. Uh, let me get to the first question. Okay. Let me answer the first question before it's asked. Libya. <laughs> Better? Uh, Libya. Um, I have been out of the Air Force for 20 years. I have not had any clearances very purposely since then, so I can say anything I want and not be accused of giving away classified information. I don't know the, the details on a no-fly zone in Libya. Uh, but I'm all for it. If I had to give a recommendation to the president, I would say, uh, I think you ought to start with the presumption that we need a, an established a no-fly zone in Libya. And let the military leaders, for our political leaders and diplomats, tell me why that's not a good idea. But my presumption is this ought to be done for humanitarian reasons. Um, I, I share everyone's view that we don't want to get involved in the politics of a, another Arab state. That seems like a loser. But I think to say this is like Somalia or this is like anything is just a failure to really think these things through. I think there's a solid humanitarian reason. And since the US can do it, I think we ought to give serious conditions that we ought to do it for humanitarian reasons. We're not taking sides. And the idea that we've got to destroy all Libyan uh, air defense systems, we probably could, but that is, is not true. Most of the fighting is taking place along the coast. In one area of the coast, you don't have to control the whole country. Uh, and in fact, I think by declaring a no-fly zone, you would already be in part affecting a no-fly zone. You don't fly, we don't get shot, 
you don't shoot at us, we don't shoot at you. Um, I've been reading, uh, listening to CNN about cratering one ways and about doing this and things such as that. Um, I think that's, a long, that's the wrong way to go. Um, but I, I think that the United States could make a case that in the, uh, in the Middle East uh, would be seen as here is a country that's at least trying to do something. Uh, I, I recognize all the dangers. Uh, I'm completely editorializing. I, there's many things I don't know, but here's something I think we ought to do. Uh, just to put the other side of it, in 2003, I thought going into Iraq was all the wrong, we did it for all the wrong, I was not in favor of that at all. My colleague, Elliot Cohen, who I teach with all the time, we're very on different sides of that. So uh, I thought that was a bad idea, I think, for humanitarian reasons, not to try to win the Libyan civil war for, for people that we don't know, but in terms of uh, Gaddafi killing his own civilians, killing his own people, I think for human rights, we ought to have something to say about that. Okay. <laughs> All right, now for our first series of three questions. Our first question from the high school students. One, this is from uh, Casey Watkins of Quinlan Ford High School. Today's earthquake and tsunami brings up the question of what is the possibility of a catastrophic event altering or affecting our military capability? Uh, I told Tom yesterday, I said, the questions of our high school kids are superb. Okay, another, now two, two more questions right here. Uh, relative to the Air Force and something a little bit closer to home, uh, do you have any comments or observations about the two uh, Air Force programs, uh, aircraft programs that uh, a lot of people have been trying to kill, uh, the B-22 Osprey and the Joint Strike Fighter? Right here, yeah. see a day when U.S. Air Force will be an unmanned Air Force in the sense of, uh, there'll be, be humans behind it, obviously, but you see hundreds of unmanned vehicles swarming the country and doing the attacks in the air with no human over a country or place. Okay. Just those three. Easy ones. Uh, first, the student one. Um, when, I thought, when I thought through about what might, might white what might we not be thinking about in five years? What sort of event don't we even consider right now? A, a, some sort of catastrophic event. Tsunami is one, but some sort of pandemic or some sort of uh, resource-driven, uh, whether it's about water or oil or natural gas or something else. That's out there, and many folks are talking about that. Maybe national defense is not just about fighting wars. It's about using military forces or having military forces in great part affected by a pandemic, uh, uh, a tsunami. Um, you could take out some bases, but it wouldn't have the same kind of effect. But fighting about something different. On the one hand, a pandemic or uh, certainly uh, humanitarian relief or recovery after something like a tsunami that the U.S. military is always engaged in. But one of the unknowns in the future is the wars become not about territory but about resources, natural resources. Um, very quickly to uh, uh, the Joint Strike Fighter and the V-22. Uh, the V-22 becomes, I would put this in the category of looking to the future uh, the V-22, there's already V-22s, uh, but do we want to, how many do we want to build when we really may need something else for the Air Force and Navy? In other words, I think in many degree, many parts, the Army and Marine Corps may be bill payers 
for some of the Air Force and Navy systems in terms of we've all got a cut, nobody gets what they want, maybe the V-22 uh, gets edged out. The Joint Strike Fighter um, is really the future, and there's no really second choice other than continuing with what we have now, which may, it's a huge bill, but not only for the United <laughs> States, this is an Air Force, it's a Navy, and it's a Marine Corps fighter that they're all depending on, as well as many other countries of the world. In other words, we're trying to build two, 3,000 F-22s, uh, excuse me, uh, F-35 Joint Strike Fighters. Um, so cutting that back um, is the start of a spiral. If you cut down the number of aircraft, the price is going to go up, which means some of the countries that are in for it now aren't going to buy them, which means the price is going to go up. Uh, it already has increased uh, significantly from what they decided five years ago. We're not even going to see it for five to ten years, and that date is being pushed out. But I don't see that being canceled. I think as, as the F-22, as in many other systems, the numbers are going to be lower. But that has some particular dangers in that there's a number of countries that are uh, involved in this. Um, one of the, I, I just hear rumblings that one of the J-35 variants, the Marine Corps variant, may not be built. Simply because it's a short takeoff variant, it, it calls for all sorts of modifications in order to make that true. I don't, I'm speaking just anecdotally that uh, whenever you try to have an aircraft for three services with different capabilities, uh, as you try to build in those capabilities, and basically there's many things you don't know, the price tends to go up, and at a certain point you've got to cut your losses. Uh, finally, the future Air Force. Um, unmanned systems are here to stay. And with the ability of computers and, and uh, systems that can coordinate these things in the air, uh, I can see them replacing some of our big, high-priced systems. For instance, the, Uni the United States Air Force has something called an AWACS, an Airborne Control Warning System that can see the environment, the air environment, for hundreds of miles away. We have also something called the JSTARS that can see the ground environment for a slow, small distance, but 100, 150 miles, can see moving targets, can, can map what's going on on the ground. We have very few of those. You knock down an AWACS, there it goes. You knock down a JSTARS and you've just lost a tremendous capability. With the coming ability, the engineering ability, to network those things, a number of small unmanned systems that can come together in a network and give you the same information. Maybe there's just a ground station or one aircraft that's far removed, but starts bringing in these information from all these unmanned systems. You take down one unmanned station, they have overlap. You haven't lost anything. You've got to take down many things. So militarily, there's much to, rec much to recommend that. Uh, certainly the Air Force and the Navy, because we're talking about naval aviation to a great degree, uh, I think you're going to see in the future many more unmanned systems operating with manned systems, where a fighter pilot is just not dogfighting another aircraft. He or she is controlling a number of unmanned systems that can attack other systems. So I think we're on our way to something like that. Um, civilian airliners, unmanned, uh, not so much. <laughs> our, our next uh, question from a high school student, uh, this is from Nusiba Chawadnuri of Garland High School. 
know, this is a tough one now. <clears throat> if the U.S. must make budget cuts and China and Iran both have growing militaries, how will we, how will the U.S. Uh, now adjust the budget to make up for any unforeseen threat? Boy, that's a tough question. All right, uh, two more questions now from the audience right here. Yes, uh, I'm curious in your remarks about emphasis on the South China Sea. Uh, for years, we maintained a division of employers between Formosa and China, Taiwan Strait, uh, on a continual basis. I'm curious, are they still there, or do we have any men of war between Taiwan and China in those waters? Okay, that's another question. Uh, over there, okay. Um, just a uh, uh, changes that Rumsfeld made specifically. Uh, let me take them in the, the order that they, uh, I heard them. Um, first of all, in terms of investments, uh, as Iran and China build up their forces, um, how should the United States react to that? Is that about it? With the budget cuts. With, well, with budget cuts. Um, this is difficult, but let me put it in context. Most armies of the world fight wars sometimes, but their main purpose is internal control. And certainly for Iran and China, their main purpose is internal control. So where they build up their military, they build up their armies. Secretary Gates said, if we're going to you have to have your head examined if you're going to try to take them on the ground. So I think where, where Iran and China are building up their ground forces, um, that's not such a big worry. Uh, I don't think Iran is going to invade Iraq. Uh, they're certainly not going to invade Afghanistan or anyone else. Um, and I think, they'd have, I think they would have trouble fighting a war because that tends to distract uh, the military from its internal control. I think the issues that with China is where they're building up a fleet and air force, which is what we're building up in order to confront any confrontation with them. Um, it's very important, I think, that, be, that that remain on a basis of uh, we don't convert them into enemies and start talking that way. Let me talk about the Taiwan Straits. Um, the United States um, has always thought about maintaining control or keeping the Taiwan Straits to be invaded. But I think the strategy has had to have changed in other words, China has all sorts of capability that they can target anything in the Taiwan Strait. So if you're going to somehow defend the Taiwan Straits, almost by definition, you're not going to be in them. You just become a target. So, and I think that's well to the good, is in other words, you can pull back the Taiwan Straits. The U.S. very seldom takes a carrier in there, and then it's sort of a diplomatic incident with the Chinese. They look like we're being very aggressive. And, but the, the other issue is, is that would we go to war with China over Taiwan? It depends. It depends on how it happens. It depends on what else is going on in the world at the time. It depends if it happens over a year or so where it's by some sort of pressure that the Chinese put on or whether they militarily attack. I think the way that unfolds is very important. 
the United States has very carefully couched its terms is that we no longer have a, a treaty, we do not have a treaty to defend Taiwan. We just have an agreement with China about here is our stance on Taiwan. So, so I think that the United States, one of the things we'll continue to look at is how do we deal with the Taiwan issue with the Chinese. Uh, they get very angry when we sell any sort of weapons to them. Uh, that's always going to be an issue, but I think the Taiwanese themselves are trying to square that one away. That was it. Uh, the third question from the uh, high school uh, students uh, uh, was already dealt with, with the with question on Libya. I'll get to that. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, but I just, I just go ahead. In passing. So we're going to have, we'll have, we have three questions now from the audience. Okay, Lynn. Um, wouldn't it be more economical to have a combined forces, Air Force, Question. Okay. Would you touch on the changes in the rules of warfare? The rules of warfare have changed so that we have to almost fight battles with one arm behind our back. And they really have changed. If we had to fight World War II using those rules, we never could win it today. First of all, Don Rumsfeld. I forgot. Uh, what did Rumsfeld do in terms of moving us from the Cold War? Don Rumsfeld came in to office in 2000 with moving the United States very drastically, uh, forgetting a generation of weapon, revolution in military affairs, transformation, and things such as that. Uh, in the summer of 2001, as soon as he became Secretary of Defense, he had a number of panels. Oops, excuse me. Uh, he he, he uh, put together a number of panels that looked at different ways to do that, and then September of 2001 happened. And a lot of it got frozen. Uh, a lot of the plans are on the books for doing this and that, but we became so concerned with fighting the wars in Afghanistan and then Iraq. Changes took place that were already within that, but the the, the, real, the program that Don Ramsall had really put together and said, this is what I'm going to affect, was overcome by events. It's a big surprise. In other words, you come in thinking you're going to be this kind of a Secretary of Defense, you wind up being a wartime Secretary of Defense. Uh, not that things have not changed, but the kinds of change he thought he was going to affect, effect, uh, didn't pl take place quite the way they thought. We couldn't no longer, we could no longer just do away with the generation of weapons. We had to fight. Uh, we, had to, we had to spend a whole lot of money doing things, just staying where we were. Um, trying to read my notes. Let me answer the last one about rules of war. Um, the United States has always fought uh, by rules of the Geneva Convention. And in some cases, we've had to, in other words, I, I, I agree with, I, I know your argument that is, wait a minute, uh, they're bombing civilians, in other words, uh, uh, 
uh, IEDs, improvised explosive de devices. They're killing civilians. They're attacking us this way, this way. It's just not fair. Uh, in other words, why don't they? Why can't we do the thing back? Well, we're never going to do that. That's just that's just what we're signed up to do. That's the way we have to fight wars. Um, any revolutionary war, revolutionary war theory is based on how the, how the weak beat the strong. How do you avoid what they can do? So whether you're talking about Mao or any of the revolutionary war thinkers, it's how do you get around the armed forces? In other words, they say, hey, we don't have an army and an air force or a police force. How are we going to get in power? How are we going to make our, um, get our, our will? And what they choose is what they can do. Uh, we call it terrorism, and often it is. Often it is. In our American Revolution, we went through a number of things that, looking back on it, we call, were in fact terrorists, in terms of killing people for effect as opposed to military rules. But I don't think we're ever going to get away from that. I think that's what we've got to say, okay, we're a certain kind of country. If we start fighting in a different way, we're probably already losing the kind of country that we're trying to defend. So I don't hold out much hope for that. Um, there's a second question, and I can't read my handwriting. Cyberspace. Uh, boy, here's something I don't know anything about. But hasn't stopped me before. <laughs> there's, a whole, there's a great deal we don't know about the, not only me, but many people, because it really hasn't taken part yet. I just read a good article. I recommend it to you. There's a uh, former CIA director, a guy named Mike Hayden, former four-star Air Force general, who's a wonderful speaker and writer on cyberspace. Um, and basic, his point is, basically his point is, we're just figuring this out. Uh, we don't know how much we want to control cyberspace. It's not like any other medium. Uh, on whether we ought to go on offense or defense. Do we really want to try to control the internet? To a great degree, this is a commercial enterprise. It's not something the government controls. So how much do we want to interfere with that or tell companies this is what you have to defend? In fact, one of the issues now is do we want to put our money on recovery or defense? That's a real live question. And one of the issues is we don't know, uh, in other words, of all the classifications, classified information, that is probably the most classified in terms of what our defenses are and what our offenses are. Mainly because as soon as you say it, you've created a vulnerability or you worry some people. So uh, that's what I do know about it. Um, once you use it, um, you give away what your capability is. Uh, it may be, it may be that the military will only st is only part of the solution. A lot of companies are going to have to assume uh, protection for what happens through the internet. Uh, in terms of taking down systems, whether it's power stations or whatever it is, uh, the military is going to have part of the answer. But again, it may be recovery. That's not, a, that's not very satisfying. But there's a lot of scary things out there that are not very satisfying in terms of we don't have ready answers. And the only thing I'll say beyond that is there's a lot of very interesting ways to start wars. Once you've taken our computers away, now what are you going to do? Now that we're really angry. So there's many interesting ways to start a war, but if, if, if I were an aggressor, I would wonder about how, I was gonna, how this was going to end up. By the way, I just read in the same article, they uh, asked a number of folks from, the different, uh, from around the world 
who do you fear most in terms of cyber warfare? And some of your candidates may be China, Russia. You know what their number one vote was? United States. Oh, oh, excuse me. I get carried away. I'm sorry. A combined force. Um, there's several countries that have made a run at this. In other words, not four services, but one service. Uh, that runs into, let me give you two, what I think big problems with that, is that nobody joins the Department of Defense. I want to be a Marine. I want to be an Army. I want to be in the Army. I want to be a sailor or something like that. So the traditions of the services are very, very pronounced and important. Second of all, a reason for the services is one of the real, one of the real things they perform is that the Army is very, very good at concentrating on land warfare. What's the future of it? What sort of systems are we going to need? How do you train for it? What's the doctrine? The same thing for the Air Force on air warfare, Navy on naval warfare, Marines on their variation. Um, and they look in the long term. You want separate organizations that are looking at the long term and understanding doctrine, training, etc. If you put together a, a combined force, um, there is no distinct variation, and I think there is a need for variations on what is land warfare about and thinking and people thinking very seriously about that. We've chosen to do both, by the way. We have an Army, Air Force, and Marine Corps that organize, train, and equip, and come up with doctrine and all sorts of things like that. And, every, and then every member of the military is assigned to a joint command for fighting. So we've done both. You're assigned somewhere, but when you go to Central Command to fight in Afghanistan, you are in a joint organization. That's exactly what you described. And we're still working on how to make that work, how to fight as a Marine and not think that you're a Marine and not just part of a joint force. We'll have our final round of questions now. Uh, anybody here? Yeah, I'd like to ask, uh, you always know, hear about how thin our, our military is stretched, and that seems to be a huge problem. Is it a problem, and if so, how do we combat places like Libya or worry about Egypt or Tunisia or any of these other places where we're supposed to be uh, concerned about the outcome of the civil war? Okay. Okay. You had indicated that you were against violence Iraq. I'm interested to know, as a military man, how would you have responded to not allowed? I think this is going to have to be the last of our questions. We're running out of time. You want to handle those two questions? Okay, I will. First off, is the military stretched? Particularly the Army and the Marine Corps are severely stretched uh, because of the number of deployments over a series of years. Not only the active force, but the Reserve and National Guard are overstressed, much more so than they thought they were getting into. And we're, we're in danger if this current level, if this current level keeps up of really um, having even more severe problems. I mean, divorce rates are up, uh, people getting out of the service. There's a number of things we're already facing, and, and, and particularly getting folks to uh, become part of the National Guard or the Reserve Forces. Very important part of the, of the large army is, uh, is also really in danger. Um, fortunately, I think that number is coming down, and it's probably a number of people deployed overseas is coming down, and it's not going to go up. 
you mentioned how do we deal with uh, Egypt or Libya or other issues of the world, not with ground forces, not with ground forces. If there's one thing that Iraq and Afghanistan has done, it's inoculate the United States from large deployments in countries like that. We're just not going to do that, whether it's good or bad. We're just not going to do that. So that's, that, that's how I would answer that one. And very quickly, the final question was 9-11. I, 9-11, I would have done exactly what they did on, in September, October, November, December of 2001. I would have gone into Afghanistan. I would have done what they did, take down the government, go after Osama bin Laden, et cetera, et cetera. What I didn't think uh, that soon after that, months after that, here is, my, here is my argument, is that I didn't think that was finished. I think they, they, what they said was phase two. Phase one was knocking down the government of Afghanistan to get al-Qaeda. Phase two has been sort of continuing to prosecute that. Phase two became an attack on Iraq, and I thought that was a distraction that we haven't recovered from. So I, I thought that was, if the president came in and said, here's what I want to do. I want, as soon as I can, Saddam Hussein is a danger to us, and as soon as I can, I want to get approval, and I want to go in and take out that regime. I would have said, okay, I think I can buy that. But that's not after 9-11, and it, was, it wasn't done with the same purpose. I thought it became a distraction when we had, we had a very much seri more serious problem, basically that. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.